Welcome, everyone, to the Monday morning edition of Unexpected Points. I am your humble host and narrator, taking you through all of the stats, the grades, the overreactions, the proper reactions, everything from week one, the NFL Sunday slate. For me, this is my analogy. For what, for what we saw in week one, at least in the early slate of action. Those of you like me who had you know multiple screens up with different games, had the red zone in the, in the corner to have to catch everything that's going on there, it was surprisingly uninspiring football to start, at least from the offensive perspective, at least on the offensive side of the ball. But then when we got... We got that dopamine hit. We got that adrenaline rush. We got that uh, crack hit, for the lack of a better term, at the end, at the witching hour there, at the end of the early slate. So for me, what it reminded me of, it reminded me of a little bit the first couple of days of the NCAA tournament where the basketball level, at least my opinion, the basketball level, Uh, in college can be good can be bad most of the time not so great but what makes the tournament awesome is the fact that you have all these close finishes and you can jump back and forth between them that was basically what we were getting in that early window was all of the game winning field goals that either went in didn't go in were blocked touchdowns near the end everything was happening all at once despite the fact that some of the play before that wasn't that great and I'll get into the particulars of how different uh, teams and quarterbacks and offenses and defenses performed in in this week but we got that we got that rush at the end at the end of the the early window not as much of a rush later on for the late and for the Sunday game but we did get that fantastic rush that we've been waiting months and months and months to get from that early window Okay, so the format today, I'm going to try to go about, I don't know, hour 15, maybe an hour and a half here, reviewing all the different games. It's going to be a little bit more condensed than what you'll get from this program on Tuesday morning and on Friday mornings when going over the island games there. For those of you who tuned in on Friday, I got a great uh, reaction to the review of the Bills-Rams game, and That was, I don't know, I probably was going 25, 30, 35 minutes on that one game. Obviously, we do not have the time for that or the stamina or I will pass out and die doing this all by myself trying to do that. So we're going to go for a much shorter time, try to get through these 14 games that we had on Sunday, but make sure we hit the high level type of stuff, not get into too many of the narratives, but we'll get into a little bit. Try to get that high level type of stuff so that you can walk away having a little bit more knowledge than some others do about what actually happened in this game. And of course, the the foundation of a lot of the different stats work that I do here when looking back on these games is what I call my adjusted score. So the adjusted scores account for more of what you would expect from the underlying level of play during this game going forward. If you had that sort of underlying play, this is the type of score you would expect from this team versus what they actually scored. The biggest differences are going to be, you know, a lot of outlier type of plays. So this is going to be more based on success rate, which is stickier. So how often a team is successful, not just the big plays or the lower plays there. It's going to add points back if you're having turnover-worthy 
if you're having, I'm sorry, turnovers that are not turnover worthy plays and vice versa, it's going to be looking at fumbling and recoveries versus expected recovery rates, you know, going to adjust based upon that. It's going to look at third down conversions, which I'm going to go through this week in particular. There are lots of teams that have very successful on third down and teams that weren't that successful on third down. You'd be surprised how often that is the defining factor in these games. It's analogous to in the NBA where they say it's a make or miss league when it comes to making or missing your three pointers, whether or not you win a particular game. The NFL is a convert or don't convert league. A lot of the time when it comes to third downs, huge leverage on those plays. It's basically a turnover, a glorified turnover plus field position. If you don't convert and that's the way we should be thinking about it. So that can be hugely successful in a particular game. If a team ends up going, Eight of 10 on third down versus four of 10 on third down. That changes the whole complex, the whole dynamic of the entire game. And I'll go through all of that for all of the slate. But I think we need to start with Sunday night football because of the ramifications for what we're hearing now coming out of the game. Um, Obviously, it was an awful game for the Cowboys, right? But the important takeaway here is that Dak Prescott, according to Adam Schefter, he is going to be out six to eight weeks, and he's having surgery on his right thumb. Let's go ahead and look at the, the schedule here for third down. I mean, not for, for third downs, for the uh, Dallas Cowboys. So, of course, they take an L here against the Bucks. Six to eight weeks, they got the Bengals coming up, then the Giants, Commanders, Rams, Eagles, Lions, Bears, Packers, Vikings. That's kind of starting into the area of when we may see Dak return. I mean, we're talking about a 500 record is probably a best case scenario. You already have the L right here. It's looking rough for the for for the Cowboys. The Eagles didn't look great defensively as they only ended up winning by a field goal, but the Eagles win. Uh, the Commanders win. It's kind of up and down for them. I'll get into that more. The Giants win. That was a that was a weird one. Uh, uh, R.I.P. to uh, uh, Tennessee Titan fans. So they probably were on the floor after missing that field goal at the end of there. But regardless, we're talking about they're already a game behind everyone in the division. And now we're talking about Dak being out for six to eight weeks. I guess you're going to hear some Garoppolo rumblings. Oh, man. Eh, it's not going to happen, especially after – you know, the difficulties I think we saw with Trey Lance and the potential for him to to get injured uh, based on he played. So I don't think there's going to be any trade there, but you never know. Jarrah might just, you know, throw everything at them and they don't really have the cap space or anything else to, to deal with Garoppolo probably going forward. Anyway, I don't know. Cooper Rush is not, I would not put him as a top five backup. And I think that's a bit of a problem. That's why I don't understand why more teams are not just throwing mid to late round picks at quarterbacks who they could potentially develop the same way that they threw a, you know, mid round pick at, and then ended up getting Dak Prescott, right? Uh, It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for the Cowboys going forward, especially after we did just did not see a very good game in this particular one. All right, let's get to the, the numbers. So going into this game, the bucks were a two and a half point favorites playing in big D uh, obviously, the final score, 19-3. to three. My adjusted scores would have had it 26-10, so a little bit better for Dallas. But, you know, it's hard to have an adjusted score of zero or something like that in, in any game. Um, if you're only scoring three points in a game, probably some unlucky things were happening for you on top of the fact that you had really, really bad play. But Tampa Bay also probably should have been a little bit better than what they were in this game. Very run-heavy. 
uh, game plan from the Bucks was just a little bit surprising. They were at a 47% pass rate, which is about 6% under what you would have expected, despite the fact that they were winning a lot. You would have expected them to be a little bit over 50% in this game, and they weren't. Will that continue going forward? I'm not sure. But Tom Brady's been, you know, top of the league in pass attempts for the last couple of seasons. It might have just been more of a function of the fact that they would had no belief that the Cowboys could even get back into this game. So if you look at the total success percentage here, it actually wasn't that bad. It's about a 25th percentile game as far as the success rate that the Cowboys had. But they were under the 10th percentile as far as their expected points added per play. And that's because of not being able to convert on third down. They were awful on third down. And they were a lot worse dropping back to pass than they were running. They were actually really solid running the ball. 97th percentile as far as their running um, success rate for the Cowboys. But uh, their percentile was in the third percentile dropping back to pass. Again, I'll just hit those third down numbers right here. The Cowboys were 6 of 22 converting third and fourth downs. Uh, You would have expected them to convert three to four more than what they had. And that cost them about 14 EPA, uh, 14 expected points because of those third down conversions. But, you know, the Bucs actually cost themselves 14 expected points on their conversions, too. And that's why they had a bit better grade than than you'd want to see. Uh, Dak Prescott had the worst PFF grade at the week at 36 Point six. Brady was at 70, so it was pretty good. And Brady's one of those ones where it was kind of typical of some games that he had last year, where his grading was pretty good, but his efficiency was basically flat as far as EPA is concerned because he wasn't able to convert those third downs. Uh, the problem for the Cowboys was what we would have expected it to be. Uh, the offensive line didn't hold up very well. And then the receiver core. I don't know what exactly they're going to do here because I remember I even have a note. One of my main notes on this game coming into it was like, I've been paying attention to the preseason. I thought pretty well. I I saw his name out there, but we have, you know, out of 50 receiving snaps. So out of 50 routes that were run there, CeeDee Lamb was out there 49 times. Dalton Schultz, 47. Noah Brown, 43. Dennis Houston, is next on here. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Dennis Houston. Uh, Undrafted free agent is out there running, you know, 30 upwards of 65% of the routes here because so many guys are out. Gallup out, uh, Tolbert out, James Washington out. You know, you have Dennis Houston out there running routes for you, just not looking good. Guys were not getting open. There wasn't, it's probably more that Dak could have done in this game, but there wasn't a ton of what we're seeing there. Again, it was a weird kind of rebirth of uh, Zeke coming coming up 5.2 yards per carry. He looked decent, at least. He had a pretty good grade for us at 83.2. But they only ran the ball 19 times because they were down so much. Fournette monster game here, 127 yards rushing. He was averaging six yards per carry. Um, big, big numbers coming in for him this season as long as he can continue to stay healthy for those of you who had him in fantasy you probably would have liked to see more than you know two catches for 10 yards but uh really looking solid as far as as the ground and the usage there he was still he still ran 22 of the 29 routes so he was out there constantly in the passing game is going to be a big big part of that offense as long as he can stay healthy which i think is what a lot of people uh expected going into this year all right, let's get back to the early games here. We're going to start with Bears and 49ers. Um, a little bit deceptive, I think, people's opinion of how bad 
the play surface was there. I mean, it was bad, but there were all these uh, clips being shared before the game even got going about the flooding field. It was, you know, bad, but not awful there. I do not want to hear, and I know this is going to be a, a talking point coming out of this, is that we, quote unquote, can evaluate what Trey Lance did in this game because of the field conditions, because of the rain, everything else that was happening there. It's a throwaway type of game. And I don't like the throwaway theme when it comes to things, whether it's a season, a game. You heard that about Justin Fields sometimes last year and how they were playing. Just throw it away. Throw away the, the rookie year for a particular quarterback. Throw away Sam Darnold's first two years because of how bad everything was around the Jets. You don't throw away. What you do is you take into account the stats and then you give them proper context. So you build some more uncertainty around it. You build the ability to change your opinion much more quickly based upon new evidence that comes in, but you don't throw it away. You don't say Trey Lance has a blank slate for what happened this year. He looked bad and he was bad in this game. And I think that has to be part of our assessment going forward. We can't just throw away everything that's happening for uh, Trey Lance after this game. Okay. So the 49ers were six and a half point favorites going into this, the over under, dropped from the low 40s down to 38 with all of the conditions that happened there and uh the under they would have hit there Chicago 19 to 10 they end up winning this game the adjusted score though and this is going to be a flip one so this is going to be one you're going to want to pay attention to versus the narratives that come out of this the adjusted score was San Francisco 17 and Chicago 12 so San Francisco had the better underlying metrics in this game although they lost the game by nine points. You're not really thrilled about a 17 adjusted score for the 49ers against a poor Bears team, but it's something to keep into context here. Okay, both teams were way under expectation as far as their pass rate. Chicago passed it about 41% of the time, 51% for San Francisco. Both were 15% under expectation. Obviously, the conditions really fell into that here. So the 49ers had a better overall success rate on offense. They even had, they were even more efficient on offense when you take out penalties and things like that. They were a more efficient team. The Bears were down in the fifth percentile for their offensive success rate here. They had a couple of big plays, some blown coverages, some wide open guys that Fields was able to make down the field. That boosted them up. But the real difference, and I just hinted at the, the penalties earlier here, is when, if you're going into that big factor here, it was about six points were lost to penalties for the 49ers. And on third down, again, make or miss league. It's a third down type of league. The 49ers were negative seven points on third and fourth down. The Bears were positive four points. That was the big difference there. And Lance was bad. 49 grade but only a 44 grade for Fields. Now, Fields, again, was more efficient because of those big plays. He had a couple of different plays. He generated about seven EPA on passes that had at least 20 air yards to them. He had a 10.2 A dot. He was throwing the ball down the field. Um, so he was being more successful there. But Lance still probably was as good, but but not really good in this game. He had some drop passes. And again, he just did not have the high-end type of play that you're going to hope for beyond a couple of flashes in this game. Okay, I think it's important 
when we're talking about the context of what happened here to look at Debo Samuel and how he was used here. That's probably one of the bigger takeaways you can have from this game. I thought it was interesting that Samuel ran the ball eight times. Um, so Jeff Wilson Jr. had nine attempts, Trey Lance had 13 attempts, but Debo eight times for 52 yards, including a touchdown there. I guess he's still going to be used. He's still going to be used as this, rushing guy i know he had the new contract he's going to get a bonus not a huge bonus but a substantial bonus if he ends up being over a certain amount of rushing yards this season maybe he'll end up getting there because 52 yards here he almost led the team in rushing now from a longer term perspective here for lance i think we have to worry a bit about the hits that he's taking i know this was a little bit of an outlier unique game here from the fact that they were playing in these conditions here, but we have Trey Lance. He had nine times. He was designed run that he's getting hit on. He had four scrambles. He had, he was sacked twice and he was hit another time. So we're talking about 16 hits, 16 times. Trey Lance was hit during this game. That would be 272 hits over the course of a season. That's a running back type of workload here. Uh, you know, the 13 times he was running the ball, whether or not it was a design run or a scramble that can't continue and expect him to stay healthy all year. And again, if there are any rumblings about Jimmy Garoppolo going to the Dallas Cowboys or wherever, I just don't think the 49ers can afford right now to allow them to have that type of hole at backup quarterback, not only just the way that Lance was playing, which was a bit shaky here, but the fact that he could get injured if he continues to, to, to work this much here. Um, so what I would just say for this game, you don't want to overreact obviously for the 49ers, but it was a poor performance and it was kind of a poor performance for the bears too. You end up getting your victory here. You're going to face the, uh, green Bay Packers next week. Not actually that much to get excited about from, from Justin Fields, but this was a very difficult matchup because the 49ers defense was just supposed to be a top five defense this year. So, you know, I just hold your horses in each direction when you're thinking too much about what may have come out of this game. Let's go to Cleveland and the at the Carolina Panthers revenge game all around here for Baker Mayfield. Uh, this was a game that was between the threes most of the time when we're talking about the point spread, but Carolina was a one and a half point favorite. Cleveland ends up winning 26 to 24 on a last second field goal from Cade York. We need to get this guy an opportunity to kick something even better than, than, than what he kicked there because that was a 58 yarder looked like it would have been good from at least 68, you know, 66 is the record right now for longest field goal. I think the, the Brown should almost try to make sure he has an attempt for that long, whether it's the end of the half or end of game to get him something for the record, because he absolutely boomed that thing into the center of the net for the game winning uh, field goal there. Now, 26-24 score, both teams are really kind of worse than that. If you look at their underlying metrics, the adjusted score I have here is 17 for the Browns and 15 for the Panthers. Um, Browns ran the ball a lot, considering how bad their offense was, about a 50-50 split, but that's something you're going to see this year. You're going to have to see it this year because their running game bailed them out as it had done in the past for Baker Mayfield sometimes. They had an 85th percentile in their running success rate and about an 85th percentile in their EPA there also. And, you know, the 
the Panthers were pretty good running the ball too, a 60, 62nd percentile as far as their, their running there, but their total success rate was just pretty bad. And drop back percentile for success rate is a 13th percentile for Baker Mayfield and the Panthers and only the sixth percentile for the Browns. So just an ugly game throwing the ball that the Browns were able to turn around and win at the end, basically just by having it at the end and not committing any turnovers, which was probably the defining factor as far as what went on here. Um, Jacoby Brissett, man, I mean, I was maybe higher than some other people on how he could potentially play here for the Browns, whether or not they could get, let's say a five and, you know, five and six record with, um, or five and four record with, uh, sorry, five and five record with um, Watson out since they have an easy schedule to start the season. I mean, it's nice that the Browns pick up this game for their chances since this was basically a coin flip and then they go against the Jets next week. But still, Brissett was just bad. He just holds the ball for so long. I do not understand like why the processing seems to be so slow for him. If you look at it, he had a time to throw over three which isn't egregiously bad but you just need to be able to get the ball out quicker as part of the system I just don't quite understand what what they're doing there both guys didn't really stretch the ball down the field they threw it underneath it was just an ugly ugly game I mean 4.6 yards per attempt for Brissett 56 percent of his passes were being completed did have a big penalty a big penalty that was a pass interference to Amari Cooper down the field. He was able to stretch things a little bit there, but generally just a bad, bad game for both quarterbacks here. Neither team, it was kind of one of those games where neither team deserved to win. And then the, the Browns ended up getting lucky here by pulling it out at the last second. All right, let's go to the Houston Texans against the Indianapolis Colts. The Colts ended up being a seven-point favorite going into this, and we have a glorious tie. The old tie here, 2020. What's interesting is both teams had a better adjusted score here because so many fluky negative things were going wrong for them. Indianapolis, 31 was their adjusted score to 28 for the Texans here. And the total success rates was really good for the Colts. If you look at it, they had a run success rate in the 80th percentile. They had a dropback success rate above the 50th percentile. And so did the um, the Texans here. But fumbles, they both lost uh, fumbles. They both lost a, a ton of uh, expected points there. Interception, of course, for, for Matt Ryan, which ended up taking away some of the expected points there. And both teams just couldn't convert third down. So the score could have been even higher in this one if they were a little bit better at converting third down. And if you look at the grading, I mean, Mills had an okay game. He was a 68 grade here. His EPA per play was basically flat. So not a great number there, but good enough against a tough, you know, ish sort of Colts defense. Matt Ryan, is he on washed watch? I think is probably an important question. For this one, should he be, um, should we be, you know, starting to draw out his retirement notice? I don't think so quite yet, although it wasn't a great game by any stretch for for him against a Texans team that they should have been able to, to beat down a lot more than this. Uh, we're talking about the the studs on both on both sides uh, in the 
in the skill positions. I mean, Jonathan Taylor is the one guy to talk about. 31 rushing attempts here. I guess they're going to try to limit his workload, but that didn't end up happening. 161 yards and a touchdown in this one. Pretty huge there. Uh, Damian Pierce, only 11 rushing attempts to Rex Burkhead's 14. So that would be a huge disappointment for everyone who was assuming he was going to be the guy there going forward. And as far as in the receiving game, Jonathan Taylor ran 36 routes to only 22 for Naheem Hines. So he was also very involved in the receiving game. Five catches, not a lot of yards, only 28 yards. But still, seven targets for Taylor on top of 31 rushing attempts. Just a monster number for him. Uh, Michael Pittman was the, the, the guy who we were hoping he would be for people who hoped that he was going to break out. A touchdown, nine catches, 121 yards, a 75 grade. Uh, really, really solid numbers there for him. And on the other side of the ball, we're just going to spread around between anyone here. I was hoping for a little bit more from Nico Collins, uh, the second-year receiver. You know, he's a late draft pick. But he only had two catches for 26 yards, but he did run the second-most routes of anyone there. And um, O.J. Howard, what's going on here? He only ran six routes, but then he got two touchdowns. Uh, two catches for 38 yards and only the six routes that he run. Okay, let's talk decision at the end of this game. Uh, so Lovey Smith chose to kick the punt rather than uh, go for it in overtime, which essentially just sealed the fact that it was going to be a high game. There was no, you know, that, that was pretty much it. Uh, there was no other way to to for any for any other outcome to happen once they decided to go ahead and kick it. Let's get the particulars on this because I think you can look at this in a couple of different ways, but that's kind of the case across the board. I think people often underestimate how much these are kind of coin flips on these types of toss. So it was fourth and three at the Colts 49. And there were 20 seconds left. So the way you look at this. If you're at the Texans, if you want to do it from a purely analytical sort of standpoint is you have to think, is this a coin flip or better? Because you're right in the middle of the field. So either you, if you go for it, you're going to have the ball with, let's say, 15 seconds left on the Colts side and a little bit better field position than the Colts will have it if you don't get it here. So it's coin flip ish. With that offense, three yards to go, yeah, it probably is a 50-50 sort of thing, and you can go either way. The problem for the Texans is, like, securing this tie, it's not going to be something where it's it's going to say, oh, now we've um, put ourselves in better position to eventually win the division or to make the wild card here because we have that tie secured rather than the loss. I mean, this is, you know, just go for it, right? Just, just, just go for it. Try to get a win here. Try to get a win for your fans. Try to get a win for your team. As it seemed like a strange decision from Lovey Smith there for the fact that coaches actually like to go for it a lot in these situations, even when they shouldn't and not play for the tie. So playing for the tie there, you know, kind of a disappointment for, for everyone all around. Um, should the Colts be in panic watch here? No, I don't think so. Not quite yet. Um, they were able to run the ball well. Like I said, they were fairly successful offensively. I think defensively, the Texans are a little bit better team than what we think they are. Um, so therefore, the Colts having uh, struggling a little bit defensively isn't the biggest, you know, isn't the end of the world, at least the way that I'm viewing things here. 
All right, let's get to Washington, Jacksonville. The good old commanders, Carson Wentz, took command here at the end of the game, leading them back for a game-winning touchdown to rookie Jahan Dotson. Dotson had a bigger role than what some people may have expected. I mean, it wasn't like he had a huge game, but I think from a lot of people's perspective, Dotson was the guy that was left out of the conversation when it came to rookies and what they could do this year for the fact that he was a mid first round pick. He was taken before Traylon Burks. He was taken obviously well before guys like George Pickens or um, Sky Moore in the second round or Christian Watson. And obviously way, way, way before someone like Romeo Dobbs, even later Uh, or Romeo Dobbs, I should say he's, he's changed his pronunciation of his name from what they were calling him in college. But you know, Dotson didn't have a huge game, but he had two touchdowns in, on his three catches. He ran, you know, 47 out of the 52 routes. He was only behind Terry McLaurin as far as how many routes he was running. So the contribution was more on the high side there, but it was good to see Dotson going there. The other guy who surprised a lot for the commanders was Curtis Samuel. 14 targets for Curtis Samuel. Completely forgotten after being a big offseason signing last year. 10 catches, 73 yards. He's not exactly killing it as far as his yards per reception, but was was doing pretty well there. All right, I kind of skipped over the the headline numbers here. So Washington, I think it closed as a three-point favorite. It went down to two and a half at one point, and that's when there was definitely some value there on the good old uh, commanders. The final score, 28 to 22. My adjusted score is 30 to 25. So roughly in line with what we would have seen with the adjusted score there. If you look at the, the passing game for both teams, and I think this is probably the thing to focus on. They were okay. Both were okay running the ball. Washington a little bit better running the ball. The passing games for both teams, they were in the 50th to 60th percentile as far as how well uh, they were throwing there, but big negatives for Washington, which ended up uh, bringing down their their productivity, which was interceptions from Carson Wentz. We had the full spectrum of Wentzing going on there. There was a fumble from Curtis Samuel and then a couple of interceptions from Wentz. One of them, he stared down a receiver. I think it was Jahan Dodson. That was about you know, 15, 20 yards down the field and led to an easy pick there. Another one, he got picked by Trayvon Walker, the number one overall pick on a screen pass, which was just a weird type of play. I'm not sure Wentz, where he was throwing it, was even to the back in that situation. But then those two extreme Wentzing type of plays happened, and everyone thought, okay, here we go. Carson Wentz doing his thing. We're, we're toast. Uh, but then miraculously, Wentz flipped around on the other side and he hit a long touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin, which was kind of in that cover two, I don't know what you want to call it, the turkey hole, the honey hole down the side. And that was a perfect illustration of a pass that Taylor Heineke just can't make. He's just not making that throw down the sideline, you know, 30, 40 yards down the sideline uh, between the defenders. I mean, it's possible with perfect timing, everything else that he's, that he can do it, but that's what Wentz is going to give you. That's the upside of what Wentz is going to give you there. And then of course he had the touchdown at the end to win the game to Jahan Dotson, a couple plays illustrating what his upside could potentially be there. Trevor Lawrence, I think he was okay. That's the best you could say about Lawrence. I mean, he's EPA per play was about flat, uh, 
They were three of 13 converting on third downs, which ended up hurting them a bit. His grade was a 56 here versus a 66 for Carson Wentz. And when I watched Lawrence, I thought he was a similar-ish type of player to what we saw last year. I mean, a bit improved uh, for what we saw. There were some good throws in there. But he also missed Travis Etienne for a wide-open touchdown on the first drive. He missed Marvin Jones for a pretty wide-open long pass when he was facing some pressure on third down, and he had one-on-one coverage, so he missed him there. And there were some other plays where, you know, ETN dropped what would have been a touchdown on fourth down later on in the game on a a short little swing pass. So this wasn't all on Lawrence, but I think mostly for Lawrence, it was kind of meh, you know, not fine. He played fine. Um, But if you're expecting a huge jump from him this year, you know, not the type of game that is going to really presage something where you're going to say, okay, that huge, that huge jump is coming based upon what we saw uh, for Lawrence in this game. I think what you could hope for is that he's going to have a good, solid year. And that's probably what you would hope for from this. Not a jump into being you know, a top 10 or maybe even a top half sort of quarterback is probably not what you're expecting after this performance. One of the more interesting things that I saw in this game was I was a little bit Actually, I wasn't surprised that James Robinson got so much work. He got 12 out of the 21 uh, carries here. I guess Lawrence had a couple of scrambles. I mean, I should take those out. So he got most of the workload there. ETN only got six carries, but ETN just looked like he had a ton of burst in comparison to Robinson coming off of that Achilles injury. I wonder if ETN is going to start to get some more looks there. I definitely think he deserved it. I mean, he had 66 yards on six carries versus 68 yards on 12 carries for Robinson. And again, Robinson wasn't bad. The running game was working, was working well there, but you know, in only six attempts, ETN uh, forced four missed tackles, which is a huge number there. And again, 66 yards on six carries. So over 11 yards per per carry there and then on the receiving side of things um i didn't talk about christian kirk so christian kirk looked good he got 117 yards uh receiving zay jones everyone else it was spread out a bit there but etn ran 24 out of the 50 routes and james robinson was 17 again etn you'd like to see him used more there but i think there are questions about his hands i know that's been a thing on some of the, you know, hashtag film watching guys that really point to the fact that he's not a great receiver. He dropped a pass in the preseason, which looks similar to the drop that he had of what would have been a touchdown here. So maybe who ETN is and how he's going to perform might be a little bit different than what we're hoping for. He's a guy that it might be more of a split in the backfield as far as the receiving work. And maybe he needs to get a little bit more of that rushing work because he just looked like he had a ton, a ton more juice. But then again, drops can be fluky. So we don't want to build too much into what we saw from the drops there. Um, as far as the pass rush is concerned, Trayvon Walker, I think he had only one total pressure, which was a sack that people shared a lot. So, you know, I just wouldn't get too excited about what he did in that week because I think we all saw the sack and we saw the interception, which was definitely a very athletic type of play. Um, but he wasn't dominant in any way, shape, or form as far as his pass rush in this game. And when it came to um, coverage in this game, uh, 
Benjamin St. Juice definitely uh, struggled a lot. He's kind of their slot guy, and he's a taller guy. Um, and you saw Christian Kirks and others playing pretty well against him there. But in a, in a surprise, uh, Derek Forrest came in there and had a 91 grade in coverage. He was coming in for Cam Curl, who was out in this game. So I thought that was an interesting substitution there. Whether that will continue going forward, who knows what we'll end up seeing. So I think for the commanders, you have and Carson Wentz, you have some hope. Uh, you have some hope for the Jaguars that it won't just be a complete clusterfuck like it was last year with Urban Meyer. Um, but definitely a lot to learn on both of these teams coming up for the rest of the season. Okay, before we get to the next game, so let's throw a good old ad read in here. Let's talk DraftKings here. The NFL's opening week was action-packed, and it's just getting started. Get ready for week two. This is early here, I know, but get ready for week two already. Touchdowns, big plays, even bigger wins with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers can bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. Want more action? Everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings early win promotion. It's simple. This Sunday, bet on any NFL team to win. And if your team leads by 10 at any point during the game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. Download DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code PFF only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See description for details. All right, let's get to Detroit Philly. A shootout. Expected shootout? Unexpected shootout? I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, we're expecting a lot from the Philly offense this year. Um, I think we're expecting a lot from the Detroit offense. They got some weapons. They bring in DJ Chark. You know, Jameson Williams obviously didn't play, but they bring him in. Uh, Hawkinson's not injured. They have Amon Ross, St. Brown. So I guess we were expecting great offensive lines. We probably were expecting a lot from from the Lions uh, restoring the roar offensively. It was a 48 and a half over under in this game. Uh, the Eagles were five and a half point favorites. So, you know, no close there. I mean, no cover there for the Eagles. 38 35 is the final score. My adjusted score is pretty high, not quite as high as the final score, 32 to 25, favoring the, the Eagles. Um, one thing to consider when looking at the Lions, just right off of the top, uh, you know, their pass percentage was 60%. So it wasn't a low, a, you know, absolute number. But they were down a lot in this game. So it was 10% under expectation. If you look at their pass rate versus expectation last season in 2021, when Dan Campbell took over play calling duties, it dropped. Like their passing rate went way down. Even when they were losing in games, they continued to run. Dan Campbell, you know, very much a Mr. Grit, uh, you know, running, running game, running the ball, truther. So he he wanted to do that quite a bit, and they were successful. I mean, they they were they had a 95th percentile as far as their run EPA. So maybe they will continue to, to do that going forward. Uh, Eagles were even more successful on the other side of the ball because they had the 96th percentile for their run success rate there, and they were also successful throwing the ball uh, much more so than the Lions in this game. No turnovers for the Eagles, so that helped them. Um, 
third downs, both teams were kind of on fire on third down, and that's why their adjusted scores are lower than the actual scores in this game. The uh, the Lions generated almost 18 expected points on third down, the Eagles at 15. And the grading, though, was a big differential between Goff and Hertz. Goff was down at 50 in his grade. Hertz was at 77.8, one of the highest grades of the week. And Hertz EPA per play was about 0.3. Now, he got a big boost from that fourth down where he kind of just strolled in as being part of his numbers. It wasn't the most solid effort, I would say, passing the ball. Only completed about 55% of his passes, 7.6 yards per attempt. Only 5.1 ADOT, which was one of the lowest of the weeks. So not the vertical passing game that you may have been hoping going into this, but limiting turnover-worthy plays you know, and being able to run the ball so effectively is kind of the game plan and probably the formula for them in these games. It's exactly what they did in the second half of last season. Uh, you know, mixing in an A.J. Brown play every now and again to get them down the field. It's really amazing how successful these new addition receivers were. We've come into this new era in the NFL where you used to always say, when receivers switch teams, you completely fade them. Uh, because normally those were high-priced free agents who teams were allowing to leave. Now we have this new robust receiver market of uh, guys getting traded like Tyreek Hill or AJ Brown here, and you know they're coming up and they're and they're playing here. Uh, AJ Brown, a crazy eleven targets, uh, where the entire rest of the team had fifteen targets here. So dominant target share, caught ten of those eleven targets for one hundred and fifty five yards. Uh, Sixty six was after the catch. Just a huge, huge game from AJ Brown. And maybe mixed missed in some of this because you only have two hundred fifty. You only have two hundred fifty four yards passing. You know, one guy taking one hundred and fifty five. Uh, that that's that's going to leave a dent on everyone else. I'd have to at least watch this in a little bit more detail, but not great for Devonte Smith. One four targets, one catch, eleven yards. Again, they didn't need a whole lot from the passing game in this one, but not not great there. Dallas Goddard three catches, sixty yards. Not not bad for him, and a very mixed passing game on the other side only 215 yards passing again because they just were not passing the ball that much for the lions but kind of mixed up between st brown with 64 yards dj chark with 52 and then hawkinson with 38 deandre swift with 31 uh on the rushing side of the ball i mean it was a mix between swift and jamal williams 16 to 11, but Swift just massively, massively more productive. Hopefully that'll swing more in his direct in his direction because he had 145 rushing yards on those 16 carries versus 28 rushing yards on 11 carries for Jamal Williams. Come on, guys, let's let's give it let's give it a little bit more. I know Jamal Williams is your emotional leader, all that crap. Uh, let's get DeAndre Swift a lot more involved in this one. 90 yards rushing for Jalen Hurts. So that's how. You can be highly, highly efficient, despite the fact that you're not necessarily throwing the ball that well, um, or at least that often. Only 34 pass attempts, you know, no touchdowns, and it's such a short A dot, all that sort of stuff for for Hertz. But when he has, let's see, how many of these were scrambles? He had nine scrambles. Wow, that's a lot. So he scrambled nine times, so that would leave the balance on here. So that would leave eight design runs 
on here. 90 yards. And the important number here, six first downs. Those first down conversions are just hugely important and valuable for the team and for Hertz here. Seems like that's going to be the formula. And you know what? He's not taking, I don't think, really awful hits from what I've been watching too. So I think it's a little bit on the sustainable side. Uh, although defensively, you'd like to see a better effort and not that, you know, not that comeback, at least at the end, uh, to keep things head and shoulders above everyone else. But I would say generally when you combine the Cowboys news here um, and Dak Prescott being out, you look at, you know, maybe you're a little bit concerned about the commanders, but Wentz was, you know, Wentz will Wentz it up uh, a few more times to end the season. So I don't think you really have to worry about that. Yeah, the Giants won, but the Giants are kind of one of the, they're, 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 they're an awful, they're, they're awful. I don't care whether they won this game or not. Uh, you know, the Eagles really have to feel good coming out of this week. I know it was a game that they were, you know, they were favored by, they should win, but at least they're sealing the victory here. And then going forward, they're going to have a pretty good schedule the entire rest of the season. They have the easiest schedule in the NFL for the entire season. And, you know, the next couple of games against Minnesota and Washington aren't going to be great. But then we have Jacksonville. Eventually, you're going to have the Cowboys, who's when um, Dak Prescott is not going to be there. Then you're going to have the Texans after that. The Steelers look pretty bad. Um, you got a lot of good games. You have the Bears eventually near the end of the season. There's going to be a lot of easy easy W's here for this Eagles team, which has really solidified itself now as the favorite in the NFC East. All right, next game on the agenda, Miami-New England. This is one where I think the results are a bit deceptive. One of the more deceptive, probably the most deceptive game, not only according to my adjusted scores, but just according to the feel that I had when I was going through it and watching a lot of it, uh, sped up, mind you, but watching a lot of it afterwards. So Miami ended up being a three-point favorite in this. I think it was up to three and a half at some time at home against New England. Final score of 20 to 7, so that seems like a pretty comfortable win here. But my adjusted score is actually on New England with a higher adjusted score, a little bit over 20 versus 17 for the Dolphins. So why is that the case? I know Dolphins fans want to be excited about what happened there. I think there were some good things on what you saw there. But why was the case? Well, this is like a success rate versus productivity type of question here. So both teams had decent success rates. It's just big negatives happened for the um for the Patriots. I mean they lost almost 12 points on fumble EPA. Of course they had the strip sack gets thrown into there. So when Mac Jones uh didn't see I guess did not see the corner blitz coming off. I think it was a slot corner. It could have been um could have been a safety coming off there, which ended up being a fumble six there. So that was a big one. They lost another six EPA on an interception there. So when you're losing 17, 18 points on turnovers versus zero for your opponent, while you want to give credit, you want to give credit where credit's due for generating those turnovers. It's not something that's going to necessarily be sustainable going forward. And that's something that flips around and you could be maybe a little bit more positive you know, if you're a New England fan looking at the results of this and saying, yeah, you, you know, the turnover worthy plays are not great there. There were definitely some, but Mac Jones, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as what you think uh, ended up what, what happened in that game. And then if we go to what's happening on 
on third down, the third and fourth down, you have the one play, the fourth and seven conversion. And kind of props to my man, uh, Mike McDaniel, who I was writing a little bit hard during the offseason about his incoherent takes on needing to run the ball because of time of possession and some you know models not being able to account for like situational things, which obviously models can account for here. He was pretty aggressive, went for it a couple of different times. And that fourth and six or seven that he went to where it ended up being completed to Waddle. And then he had, you know, the, the formula for what they were hoping for in this offense, at least the run after catch for the touchdown. I mean, that's just a huge play. So really, if you just think about it, like the, the, the the strip six, sack six, whatever you want to call it, the fourth and seven, uh, the fumbles that you had derailing the offense for, um, for the Patriots, all that stuff. It's kind of like, yeah, it's bad. You need to get it fixed, but it doesn't necessarily presage what's going to happen going forward for these teams and how you would expect things to happen going forward there. So that's why I'm a little bit more positive on New England than what you may have seen in the numbers here. If you want to dig into it a little bit further, looking at some some workload stuff, and I think that could be important. Let's get to the fantasy, fantasy heads out there. Uh, Chase Edmonds had half of the carries, which is pretty good. He only got 25 rushing yards, though. He didn't really do much there. So I think that was good for him. It was a 9-8 split in carries between Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson. Just really couldn't get anything going with the running game there for the Patriots, which ended up being a problem. And then Tyreek Hill had a very strange line. Very strange line for Tyreek Hill. I mean, he got 12 targets in 31 routes run. So, yeah, he's they're targeting the hell out of him. Got eight catches. So, you know, that's pretty good. But he also only had 94 yards. So 94 yards on 12 targets is not what you expect from someone like Tyreek Hill. I mean, he still ends up at three yards per route run, which is like league leading sort of number there, but I just don't know how often he's going to get to it. If it's with that sort of peppering of yards per reception, uh, you know, down under 10 is not something that you would typically think to see from, uh, I'm sorry, is a dot down under 10. It's, you know, it's, it's not horrible. There's going to be some underneath stuff. You're going to expect to see maybe a little bit more, from Hill here. Uh, Edmonds was in there on most of the passing downs. So if you have him there, he had 21 routes run only four catches, but not too bad there. I think there's been too much hype about how bad the receivers are for the Patriots. Cause it's basically the same guys they had the year before with some additions there. Now, Devonte Parker didn't do anything. He only had one catch for nine yards uh, despite running all 35 routes here. So that was a bit disappointing. But if you think about it, some of the balls that Mac Jones was, was throwing up there. He did try to hit him in the end zone for a touchdown. And what's really weird about this game, no turnover-worthy plays for Mac Jones. I mean, I think the fumble on the strip six probably could have been called a turnover-worthy play, but we're actually not even calling that interception that he threw up to Parker uh, that ended up being taken away, the nice play by the defense. We're not even calling that a turnover-worthy play. Whereas for Tua, and this is another reason why the adjusted score is off a bit here, we have a markdown for two turnover worthy plays here, which is maybe, you know, not fully accounted for one of them. He was, he was stripped in the pocket. He took a sack, which ended up being recovered by the dolphins offensive line that we credited him with a turnover worthy play. And 
Another one, he just kind of floated one out that was a dropped interception that went over everyone's head on the sideline. So neither one of those ended up converting for the Patriots. And that's another reason where, again, I think the Patriots were potentially, you could say, the slightly better team in this. I know there were some big plays there. At the very least, it was closer than the 20-7 to score. But it's going to be tough for anyone to not be you know, throwing a fit in New England and worried about what's going to happen going forward, knowing this ugly start offensively, this ugly start, uh, only putting seven points up on the board after having all of these questions about the offense in the offseason and the, the P- Patricia show and everything else that that is going on there this year. It's not People are going to be very, very concerned. Maybe a, a moderate dose of let's wait and see before we completely you know bury the patriots here and let's also wait and see before we're crowning the dolphins because i think that was kind of an uninspiring win uh for them all right talk about uninspiring let's talk about the new york jets okay just kidding jets fans well you know what's interesting about this this is wild i'm gonna have to dig into this a little bit further because i didn't look at this beforehand this game because i just kind of assumed what was going to happen here i mean baltimore was six and a half point favorite in New York, 24 to 9 is the final score. What's wild here is it has their adjusted scores being about equal at 25 apiece. So let me dig in. Why would that be the case? Well, it looks like their success rates were were the same in this game. So that's why. They actually had a decent dropback success rate for the Jets here. I'm a little bit surprised here in the a better dropback success rate than the Ravens did. It's just the Ravens through the roof as far as their efficiency when they were successful on this one. Um, let me figure out exactly what happened here. Oh, it was the so big plays? Okay, so yeah, they had the big plays for Lamar Jackson here, and that's really what ended up driving it. If anyone saw, he had a very long touchdown pass to Rashad Bateman, which I think accounted for one of the biggest plays of the game there, and really boosted up the EPA per play for Jackson, which was good, not great. His grading was pretty good, a seventy-six point eight. So that was a big part of what happened here, but. It really was just turnovers, and I think the turnovers, I mean, there were some bad throws, definitely by Flacco, that ended up going that ended up going to, to the turnovers here, but maybe not quite as, as bad as we thought afterwards looking at this. I mean, I think it was just a game where you couldn't get much going offensively early, despite having some success for the Jets, and then it just ended up being boring. It was just kind of a boring game when you were watching there, other than the fact that we had some big plays for Jackson later in the game when they were not running the ball. The, the, the Ravens could not run the ball to start this game. I mean, they ended up with 79 yards on 23 carries. And if you take you know, Lamar Jackson out of this here, Kenyon Drake, 12 carries for 43 yards. Justice Hill, two carries for three yards. Mike Davis, two carries for 11 yards. It was just a struggle. It was a struggle for them to get anything going on the ground, which really held them back here. And um, 
offensively, it just really ended up being Lamar Jackson with the big, big plays. I mean, he had two big time throws out of his 17 completions. That's a pretty high rate for him. That's what ended up happening. Okay. Okay. A couple more things for the Jets. Okay. I'm, I'm seeing some stuff here for why we think, why my numbers think the Jets were maybe not as bad as you, as you think four drops. So that's something actually no turnover worthy plays. Um, I'm surprised because I thought that interception it's, was, oh, I guess the receiver fell down on the interception for Joe Flacco. I mean, I guess, I don't know. It's one of these things where the, you know, we have these binary designations of a turnover-worthy play or not a turnover-worthy play. Sometimes it's more like a 50-50 sort of thing, and you end up leaning one direction to saying no turnover-worthy play when, I don't know, it wasn't a great play by by Flacco there. Uh, but bigger picture, you know, Jets secure the win. I mean, uh, Ravens secure the win, which is big for them. I mean, the Browns got a win, but then the Bengals did not. Steelers, I think, a little bit less of a worry. But it's really, you know, Ravens and Bengals that are going to be battling it out for the top of this division. So Ravens handled business, I would say, in this game. But it was nothing at all to be necessarily excited about going forward. I think... The receiving is going to be an issue for the Ravens going forward where, because I mean, like I was watching this game and, you know, Bateman ended up getting that long touchdown. So he had something there, but still only five targets for Bateman. There were, you know, Devin Duvernay caught two different touchdowns in this game. Another, again, these long plays that ended up, you know, working for the Ravens today, but will they always work for them going forward? I'm not sure. Demarcus Robinson was in there, five targets. Um, you know, nine targets for Duvernay and Demarcus Robinson when they ran, you know, 18 routes and they're getting targeted. Nine out of those 18 times that they were on the field together, they got targeted. Isaiah Likely, who was the preseason stud, he also ran 18 routes. Two targets, zero catches, though. So I don't know, man. It's just still very iffy. And just think about, like, if Mark Andrews goes down, if Rashad Bateman goes down. Then we're talking about Devin DuVernay, Demarcus Robinson, Isaiah Likely, these guys as being your main guys. It's just very, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned. I'm a little concerned there. They got the big plays this game. Lamar Jackson, you know, put them on his back to get it done this game. But if they can't get the running game turned around, they can't be more effective running the ball. It's just going to be a little bit difficult for them. Um, again, if you look at, if I'm going to give you their their running uh, success rate, their run success was only a 26% success rate, 10th percentile, 10th percentile in their EPA per run. And then include some Jackson runs, which were profitable. Mm. Looking a little bit like last year. And I attributed a lot to the struggles last year as because they had the 2015 All-Stars in the backfield of Devontae Freeman and Latavius Murray. They got some guys with some more juice now. Although, you know, obviously there were injuries there for J.K. Dobbins. Hopefully he comes back. You know, Ronnie Stanley comes back. Um, that running game could get going. But you log this, but you keep in the back of your mind, this might be a little bit similar to what we saw last year. Again, Baltimore, 8.5% pass rate over expectation. They were they were over expectation last year after being the lowest pass rate versus expectation the two prior years. I think that's where they want to be, though, is in that low pass rate. Um, 
didn't happen this game. So the formula is still the 2021 formula for the Ravens. Eh, don't know if I like that. Don't know if I like that. So a little bit of concern there and something to watch going forward for Baltimore. I mean, I don't have anything to say about the Jets. Sorry, Jets fans. Um, defense. Defense looked good, stopping the run. And the defense looked good other than the big plays, other than the blown, busted big plays, which, yeah, that's like saying, you know, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln, other than, you know, you, you, you know the saying. Okay, anyway, let's get to Atlanta, New Orleans. Battle of the 2015 first two picks in the NFL drafts, Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota. The Saints pull this one out. 27 to 26 Saints were five and a half point favorites. My numbers have the Falcons being the better team in this one, 28 to 24. And the reason being turnovers, big fumble from Marcus Mariota. So that's part of the reason why we hedge that a little bit. Um, Just a much better drop back success rate here but the epa was not so great so they were successful but not as good as far as the efficiency there for mariota i thought mariota played pretty well we only have him graded at a 58.9 i thought he was pretty good it's just that that fumble that he had okay so let's go back in time here i got a rewind the clock to see if I remember exactly. I have some notes here exactly when it happened. So the Falcons were up 26 to 10. I'm sorry, 23 to 10 midway through the third quarter. The um, they were, they were driving and they had a play where Mariota scrambled inside the 20. And it's just like, oh, just get that first down and go down. He tried to go through it. He ended up having a fumble. Actually, it wasn't like a big turnaround right at that point, but because the Falcons ended up being up 26 to 10 with about 12 minutes left in the game. And that just, then it was, everything was downhill from there. Um, and that's when also Winston was allowed to cook. Talk about Russell Wilson cooking. Let Jameis cook. Okay, Jameis in the fourth quarter was 11 of 12, 157 yards and two touchdowns. Let Jameis cook, people. With that, um, with everyone coming back, Michael Thomas getting into the act, some touchdowns, Chris Olave was two-point conversions, Jarvis Landry leading the team with over 100 yards receiving, really using all of those different, different weapons there because the team was not cooking offensively early in the game other than the fact that Taysom Hill – broke off a huge run, and then again took a design play where he took the snap and then took it in for a touchdown early. Other than that, not cooking, not cooking at all. Um, We got to talk about, I know we don't want to harp too much on fourth down decisions, but an interesting point was alluded to by friend of the pod, Ben Baldwin here, that the... Atlanta Falcons decision fourth and one at the New Orleans Saints 42 with one minute and 40 seconds left up by two. They take a delay a game and then punt the ball. This was 
the worst decision in the history of the fourth down decision bot for Ben Baldwin. It only goes back to 2014, the different decisions here. But the worst, Arthur Smith, you are crowned as the biggest boomer of them all here. Although he's not even, he kind of looks boomerish, but he's not even that old. It was a 15.5% win probability gain that you get going for it in that situation. Now, there can be some issues with the bot and its inability to differentiate between, you know, fourth and an inch and fourth and um, half a foot. But still, this is one where you go for it if it's fourth and three in this circumstance. It's not like it had to be half a foot. Maybe the the win probability gain is not 15% if it's a little bit further on this play. But you got to go for it in this situation. And let's break down the particulars here so you can see why you have to go for it. Again, you're up by two points with 140 left. The other team only needs a field goal. And they're going to be playing with all four downs. You know, you're you're giving them a third more downs to work with because they're going to go for it on fourth down always on the other side of the ball. That, you should know, punting the ball away is basically giving up at that point. That, you know, your your win probability is just going to go down significantly in that circumstance. Whereas if you succeed on that play, because also New Orleans had no timeouts there. So if you succeed, if you convert this, the game is over. 100%. You win. Um, I'm not sure if Arthur Smith was asked to explain this decision. He and Dean Pease, the defensive coordinator, make up by far the most... uh, kind of gruff, crotchety, old man-ish vibe that I'm sure he's not going to want to explain everything that went on there, but just kind of wild, just wild not to go for in that, in that, in that circumstance. Maybe if you guys have some more context that I'm missing on what, on what happened there. Ugh, man, I don't know, but worst decision according to the history of the bot. Congratulations to you, uh, Arthur Smith. Okay. Let's get on to the next game here. Got to crank through a few more games here before we get out of here before 11 o'clock. Okay, so Cincinnati Bengals, Pittsburgh Steelers, Cincinnati, seven-point favorite. They lose in a god-awful overtime that I had to watch while I was missing Patrick Mahomes put up multiple touchdowns uh, on CBS. Adjusted score, Cincinnati was 30 to 13, even though they lost by three points. So there's massive, massive better team in this matchup. And it's going to come down to turnovers. And whenever you have four interceptions and a fumble for Joe Burrow, while we credit you with some of that, I mean, that's bad. You know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to chastise you for that, but probably not sustainable. For, for that much bad luck from a turnover perspective there. Because if you look at just the success rates of the offenses, I mean, the total success rate for the Bengals was 43%. It was 29% for the Steelers. That's a third percentile. That's three, three out of a hundred percentile for the Steelers in their offense, where 
the Bengals were kind of like an average team offensively. Uh, I mean, they stunk running the ball too. Uh, both teams were awful running the ball. Both teams under 10th percentile running the ball. So I don't know if you're hoping to be able to run the ball to, to help out with uh, Mitchell Trubisky, you know, good luck. That doesn't seem like it's going to be working again this season for the, uh, for the Steelers. So the Steelers went to overtime and almost lost this game multiple times. And if you look at the expected points lost via turnover for the Bengals, 24 points, 24 points, crazy, crazy number that they still almost lost on that one. Um, God, I don't know how we have Trubisky graded at 62. I mean, he was, he stinks. I'm sorry. His EPA was awful. His, he couldn't convert anything. Um, if he, Kenny Pickett's in this game, in my opinion, and again, I've been advocating Pickett, like, you know, slamming the Pickett button here saying, start Pickett. Um, I think you win this game with ease. I mean, Joe Burrow took seven sacks and had five turnovers. Actually, sacks, negative 17 EPA in sacks. So negative 17 EPA in sacks, and then negative 23 EPA in turnovers. And you barely won the game. If they make an extra point or they make a chip shot field goal, you lose the game. Oof. I mean, I know the Steelers got their victory here, but like, if you want to win, forget this starter veteran thing. Forget Mitchell Trubisky. We know who he is. We have thousands of dropbacks of him being bad. And this 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 talk before the game that he's going to be the starter for the entire rest of the season, please, God, no. I mean, I don't believe it for a second anyway. Um, but unfortunately, awful performances like this that turn into key victories on the road just give Trubisky a little bit more rope where I was hoping that he would be, you know, by halftime of week one, he would, they'd be making the move to pick it. Um, but the Bengals turning it over a billion times uh, is going to have maybe a, a negative effect on the Steelers long-term by not allowing the switch to happen to, uh, to pick it rather than Trubisky. That's, that's going to be, that's definitely going to be annoying me in the next couple of weeks going forward. I mean, big injury news, TJ Watt, Torn Peck. I, I don't know if that's been confirmed or not. Has it been confirmed? I think so. Anyway, he's going to be out for a while. That's rough. That's going to be rough for them. Because, um, again, they're just really going to need this defense and the ability to get there with with four. Um, if you look in this game, let's see, how often were they blitzing in this game? They, eh, 20% blitz rate. So not nothing, but still not blitzing that much for generating, you know, 40% pressure rate on Burrow. Oh, and one other thing here, I saw a tweet from uh, Peter Schrager over at um, NFL Network about, you know, are we sure that the Bengals fix their offensive line with their four new starters because Burrow took seven sacks? Remember, guys, a stat, a sacks are a QB stat. Not that 100% of them belong to Burrow. Not that he's at fault for every single one, but that's the way he plays. Having a better offensive line is not necessarily going to lower his sack count. What it's going to lower is, what it's going to raise is the ability to make big plays. But if you're willing to hold the ball and take sacks, that is a more of a thing than anything else when it comes to Joe Burrow. And he's not going to take seven sacks every week, but he's still going to have an elevated sack rate no matter how good the offensive line there is. It's just a thing. 
it's just a thing for for quarterbacks that they have to be able to to get over. All right, let's go to Arizona KC. I mentioned that we I missed the beginning of this game, having to watch that god awful overtime um, for the Bengals and the Steelers. Uh, KC was a six and a half point favorite. That was one of the bigger movers. It started like under three and just flew up throughout the last couple of weeks. A lot of injuries to Arizona, and it looks like it should have flown up even further. Uh, 44-21 final score, and the adjusted score is 43-15, to so even a wider gap here. Um, can't ask for anything else from the Chiefs' offense on this one. I mean, it was pretty close to perfection. 57% success rate, which is in the 95th percentile. They averaged 0.33 EPA per play, which is in the 97th percentile. Uh, Running, they were more like 50th, 60th percentile. And then again, going to the passing, Patrick Mahomes, 98th percentile success rate, 95th in uh, EPA per play. And they had a fumble in there too. We were able to get by that quite easily. Converted, you know, pretty good on, converted nine of six third downs, ended up being good there. And the EPA per play for Patrick Mahomes is 0.7, almost 0.7 on the week, which is the highest number for anyone, higher than Josh Allen. Of course, Josh Allen had that interception, which kind of wasn't his fault. Um, But the way that Mahomes played here, again, I'm going to have to form some sort of protest at the PFF grading offices here because Mahomes got a 74.6 grade on the week. Josh Allen was 91.5, Ryan Tannehill was 84.4, Justin Herbert, 82.2, Jameis Winston, uh, 79.6, so on and so forth. Kirk Cousins, 76.8, then Patrick Mahomes. Actually, I also missed. Hurts and Jackson are in there too. So Patrick Mahomes ends up being, what is it, the eighth best grade on the week, despite, let me, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth best grade on the week, despite having the highest EPA per play by far in this game, despite taking zero sacks. Again, something that's underrated by pretty much everyone, uh, including our grades. Um, Despite having no turnover-worthy plays in this game, um, despite completing 80%-ish of his passes. And I think what's missing sometimes from the grading and probably even the perception coming out of this week where, I don't know, I think Josh Allen is in Justin Herbert, maybe got a little bit more juice out of their performances than, than Mahomes is. It's just the execution, just executing like you're supposed to execute. And again, he was getting blitz 55% of the time. I don't know why you did that Cardinals because he destroys the blitz, but just executing everything that happens with the processing and getting it to the right player before the snap happens, not credited enough quite clearly um a lot of it is about how many throws you're making how many big time throws you're making he only had one big time throw on here because he didn't need to i mean if you're putting up those type of stats you're finding the right guy you're matriculating the ball down the field who cares about the big time throws that much and i think that hurts him the grading maybe hurts him in some people's perception maybe they don't think for sure okay he had the touchdowns though so that does help the touchdown int warriors will be will will love five to zero for Mahomes there. Um but maybe just the quiet ish sort of execution here from Mahomes is probably understated 
you know, still the best quarterback in the NFL on for me, no matter what. Okay, Kyler Murray, 59 grade, not great. They weren't great converting. They're a little bit behind the eight ball, though, offensively in this one. I mean, it's it weighs on you. And I know some people think if you have, you know, garbage time, that's going to be good for your stats. Not necessarily. Uh, I think it does weigh on you when the other team is just going down and scoring with regularity like that. What are you going to do offensively uh, on the other side of the ball? How are you going to be able to combat that? It's just tough. It's tough to stay in a game when that when that is happening. And the receiver group, which we thought was going to be, you know, an issue for the Cardinals. I mean, you had Marquise Brown was out there. He had four catches. Greg Dortch, seven catches. Not what you want to see. Um, A.J. Green, you know, Andy Isabella running 15 routes, even though they were desperately trying to get rid of him earlier this year. It's going to be a little thin. A little thin for them without Rondale Moore there. So that was a bit concerning uh, seeing that if that continues going forward. Whereas on the flip side of things, I think it was exactly how you'd want it to play out for the Chiefs. You have Travis Kelsey with his eight catches for 121 yards. Then you say, okay, let's get um, four catches for 44 for MVS. Let's go six for 79 for Juju. Let's get three catches for 16 yards for Nicole Harmon. Maybe you want a little bit more than that. Um, they kind of missed him. You know what's funny is twice I felt like Patrick Mahomes missed Hardman where he was throwing it as if it was Tariq Hill. And Tariq Hill would have just been a little bit faster and would have gotten under a couple of balls, uh, which would have made it even more ridiculous as far as the numbers that he would have put up in that game. McKinnon out there with a few catches. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire getting some easy touchdowns. Congratulations to CEH owners You probably in fantasy. You probably want to get rid of him as quickly as humanly possible um, after that sort of effort. And, you know, then they ran the ball pretty well a lot of it was garbage time type of stuff though that uh, the Chiefs are running the ball but they ran the ball pretty well there also going forward just the perfect formula for the Chiefs and um the Cardinals offense though was a little stuck in the mud so maybe we didn't have they weren't really tested defensively and we want to see a little bit more from that defense going forward um just a tough 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 game for the Cardinals generally and I'm, I'm not gonna get too much on Kyler Murray although I do think the DeAndre Hopkins suspension it's going to be a thing. We're going to be talking about it the next couple of weeks, unless Rondell Moore can come back and they can kind of form a better receiving core there and a more coherent um, passing game than what they had this first week. All right. Uh, Tennessee, New York Giants, the Giants, the G-Men pull out the victory 2021, despite being five and a half point underdogs. I have Tennessee as being a slightly better team, according to the adjusted scores. Both teams were actually fairly successful, um, but their EPA was not so good. So if you look at what happened in this game, what drove things down? Well, we have, you know, the turnovers. So for the Giants, ended up weighing them down quite a bit here. And then on the other side, you just had some big plays for the Giants, which ended up keeping them in the game, especially running the ball. Uh I'm I'm not a Daniel Jones guy, and he wasn't good in this game here. I mean, if you look at it, they're running running the ball. They were 97th percentile in their efficiency running the ball. Uh, Saquon Barkley is back. 
uh, whereas they were in the 13th percentile is their efficiency passing the ball. It's kind of the flip, flip the script for Tennessee, which you wouldn't have expected. Tennessee was the opposite, seventh percentile running the ball, and then 76th percentile throwing the ball. This was a don't blame Tannehill, especially when you think about like the guys that he's got and he's throwing it to out there. Um, I mean, the Giants stink, though, defensively, so let's not get crazy, but they couldn't run the ball. I mean, Henry, 89 yards on 22 carries. To me, he, I don't know. I don't want to say he didn't look like the same guy because it's a little bit early to say something down. Obviously, he had a fumble in there, too, but he didn't lose it, but he still had a fumble in there, so that's not great. But big contrast to Saquon with 18 carries for 164 yards. Just went absolutely ham. Saquon is back here. Um Still reliant upon some big plays, but he also made some good interior moves near the goal line, which I was surprised by. They ended up playing so well. Receiving-wise, when we talk about this game, see, this is the problem for the Titans. I think we need to get Traylon Burks a little bit more involved. 14 routes on 39 snaps. I think there probably are some issues with his consistency, all that sort of stuff there. But Robert Woods, one catch for 13 yards. Austin Hooper, one catch for six yards. Nick Westbrook, Akine, one catch for 13 yards. I mean, it really was Kyle Phillips doing everything. And then Burks also had 55 yards and three catches and five targets on only 14 routes run. He also had some deep passes there, so a lot of air yards. He was kind of the only guy that was doing anything there. Oh, Saquon also. I'll hit Saquon. Eight catches, 43 yards. Monster. Monster game from Saquon here. And regression comes for everyone. Uh, you know, Tennessee had the best record in the NFL over the last two seasons, 13 and four in one score games. Boom. They got hit in this one here. Um, Decision factor. Should the giants have gone for two to go up by a point late in the game? It's basically a coin toss at that point. Uh, I think the key thing to to determine here is, you know, if you go for one and you tie the game, you're giving a minute left to the other team. They may come back here. You are making them more aggressive by going for it. And, you know, Tennessee missed the field goal at the end that they would have won. Uh, but I think it was a toss-up sort of call. I wouldn't, you know, a minute is a decent amount of time left. Maybe not ideal. You more want to go for two if you're down one with about 30 seconds left to go as an underdog. But because they were the underdog, it's right in that mode where you want to end it in regulation rather than go to overtime. So I think it's an okay call from the Giants. Ended up working out even though they needed a missed kick in order to get there. All right, Minnesota Green Bay. I'm going to have to go into overdrive here to get through this. 23-7, Minnesota wins, one-and-a-half-point favorites. That flip from the other way being one-and-a-half. 27-22 adjusted score. So the adjusted score is actually a lot better for Green Bay than you would have expected here. And if you look at what they're able to do, the Packers were really good running the ball. They actually had a 99th percentile in their rushing success and efficiency but they were just down a lot so they had so they passed at 70 percent of the time they weren't able to flip it over to that and just a bad game rogers bad game passing the ball they had fumbles they had an interception typically things you do not see from a packers team they weren't being blitzed at all it was only a five percent blitz rate um and they just could not convert on third down three of 11 on third down so not good at all there for rogers one of the worst games that we have seen from him in a long time Um, and getting sacked a lot. I mean, both the tackles were out, so that's an issue, but I think we also saw the ball sticking in his hand a little bit here at about 13 points lost on sacks 
And you don't want to overreact, but you also don't want to underreact, meaning you don't want to say, oh, the Packers got blown out in week one last year, and then they came back to be great, so therefore let's not read too much into what happens this year. No, that's not how it works. You have to properly assess what happened here. And I think when it comes to the receiving core, I think there's a difference of like the Patrick Mahomes situation in this situation. The Chiefs, while they lost Tyreek Hill, just like they, you know, you could say Devontae Adams was lost for the Packers. They brought in like credible guys, MVS, credible guy, Juju Smith-Schuster, credible guy. They, you know, they, they also spent the second round pick on Sky Moore and have, and having him come in. So, you know, they're bringing in options. They had Nicole Harmon there, whatever you think of him, um, already before. Now with the Packers turning everyone over, you have, you know, Randall Cobb left over, Tunyon left over. Um, that's kind of it, right? Christian Watson comes in and maybe the landscape of the game would have changed if he wouldn't have dropped a wide open touchdown, which would have been a touchdown on the first play of the game, completely burning poor Patrick Peterson on that one. Maybe the composition would change, but it's just not reliable, credible guy at this point in his career. Uh, Romeo Dobbs. Yeah, great during the preseason, but is he reliable, credible, you know, you know, a uh, guy you can count on right at this point? We'll see. We don't really know at this point. Randall Cobb's just old. Um, and if you're going to have Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon out there say, we're ever going to try to run like this two running back type of offense, it just stinks. It's just not going to work. Um, you just can't have Aaron Jones being targeted almost as much as anyone else here. A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones, 11 targets between the two of them. It's just not going to be a high quality offense going forward and something you're going to want to continue going forward. Just can't do it. Just can't do it. Um, and, you know, defensively, I thought the pass rush would be a little bit better. Uh, I was just surprised they weren't getting as much going there. I mean, Rashawn Gary had five pressures. Actually, Kenny Clark did pretty well. He had six pressures. So they, they did bring some pressure, but I guess Kirk, Captain Kirk. Um, and, of course, let's talk Justin Jefferson. How can we not? Nine catches, 184 yards, two touchdowns. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, absolutely explosive. The Packers are running zone at about 90% of the time, and he just totally completely carved that up. Okay, last game, which I'll get to extremely fast here to get under the wire, and that is Chargers, Raiders, three-and-a-half-point favorites were the Chargers in this one. Final score, 24-19. Adjusted score, 28-19, to so right in line with there. This was a game where the Chargers could not run the ball. The run success rate was down in the eight, 20th percentile, but the Raiders could run the ball. But they ended, but the Raiders were passing it a lot because of the fact that they were down a lot of this game, 75% pass rate. So it's kind of, again, a flip the script sort of thing here. The Chargers were awesome passing the ball. Raiders bad um, and vice versa, running the ball. Big turnover differential here, 13 expected points lost with interceptions here for Carr. Carr just had a bad game, 41 grade, you know, only a little bit better than Dak Prescott on the week. And then Justin Herbert, MVP-ish sort of efficiency in this game and grading, despite the fact that they were not converting third downs very well. So they did this despite that fact. So they were actually a little bit better than you would think in this sort of game, the way that they played uh, offensively in the way that Herbert was. And we saw, you know, the, the lasers he was throwing out there, the laser show that he had there, 75%. Uh, completion percentage and 
big time throws, despite the fact that he only had a 7.5 yard a dot, he's not throwing it down the field that much. That continues to be the case. Some people complain about it, but I mean, hell it ended up working. You just need to convert a few more of those third and fourth downs. And then you would have had that much more successful of a, of a play here. And when it comes to Vegas, I mean, they use the hell out of Devonte Adams, their new guy there. They were using them and they were using them a lot. You know, he's getting his, his money's worth there when he had uh, 10 targets, 140 yards and a touchdown, but just not enough efficiency for the rest of the offense. And let's face it, you know, Derek Carr is up in everyone's top 12 type of ranking for quarterback. He's just not that guy. Um, and you're just going to see how difficult it's going to be for the Raiders to compete in this division. Um, when they clearly have the fourth best quarterback, in my opinion, in this division, it's just going to be tough for them. Um, but closer than it really needed to be here for the Chargers because they could not run the ball and they couldn't convert third downs. But when you can't run the ball, you can't convert third downs. It's nice to have a quarterback like Herbert and still get that victory um, facing a pretty good team on the other side of the ball. All right, everybody, I got to wrap it up and get out of here. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, go ahead and rate, review the pod. Let me know what you think of everything. Otherwise, I'll be coming back at you tomorrow morning for the longer extended wrap-up of Monday Night Football. Enjoy Russ's return to Seattle, and I'll be talking at everyone tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.